Hi, my name is Chris, part of the leadership team here at DCC. Thank you so much for listening to a Church in the City podcast. And we hope that you enjoy this message and that it enriches and encourages you today and that it serves towards fulfilling our mission of empowering movement of passionate Jesus followers. Well, good morning. Am I on? Am I on now? Ooh. Ooh, that's good. Forgive me if I cheat and sit down this morning. I'm still tired from yesterday. Speaking of golf, not that I golfed, but I followed 90 guys around, 90 guys and gals who golfed in the rain, 60 degrees. Wow, what a crazy day. We just had a, one of the verses and one of the songs up there said something about the rains being stopped and the floods being gone, and I thought, yay, you know. Good thing. So speaking of golf, does anybody else here love Mark Twain? The author, the humorist, books, novels, short stories, essays, spoofs. He was a bitter old man toward the end. And he wrote some of the most scathing criticisms of human nature. But I like him anyway. If for no other reason, because he convicts me. He keeps me honest about myself. And I need that comeuppance often. I like some of his quips about golfing. I heard this one yesterday at the golf outing. He said, it's good sportsmanship to not pick up a lost ball before it stops rolling. (laughs) Think about it. One of my favorites is from the Diary of Adam and Eve, where he had this inscribed by Adam. After over 900 years of marriage, he had this inscribed on Eve's grave marker. He said, where Eve was, there was Eden. After only 51 years of marriage to this wonderful gal, I can relate to that one. I especially like this one about the Bible, where Twain says, it ain't them parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Think about that. So here's one of my quips. Never be afraid of admitting that you need a savior. Rather, be afraid of denying that you need a savior. Because here's the thing. According to scripture, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 from the RRV, everyone has missed the mark and fallen short of the condition that should be reflecting the glory of God. And that includes me and you. Whoa. That includes me and you. Picture me as an arrow falling short. Falling short of the target, which is Jesus Christ, our role model. And then the worst part, again, according to scripture, Romans 6, verse 23 from the RRV says the consequence of failure to hit that mark is death. I'm pretty sure that's the type of thing that Twain was talking about because it's pretty clear, it's understandable, and it's pretty heavy. And I'm guessing that he may have been alarmed enough at that that he might not have read any further. But that's where he would have gone wrong because scripture goes on to talk about the big unless. There's a lot of unlesses in scripture. You've sinned against the God of the universe, your maker. You carry a death sentence unless, unless you can admit that you were a sinner and that you can't save yourself and that you need a savior, which God provides in his son, Jesus Christ. That same verse, Romans 6, 23, goes on to talk about God's gift of life without limits through Jesus Christ, our Lord. John 3, verse 3 has Jesus telling Nicodemus 
that unless, there's that word again, unless one be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like Twain, a lot of folks stumble over all that because they have a highly elevated opinion of themselves. So let's break it down. What, is, what does scripture actually mean when it talks about sin, salvation? It means that you and I were created to bring glory to God our creator by being the crown of his creation, his image bearers, his ambassadors, his stewards, exercising dominion over this world in his name. But without the spirit of God regenerating our old natures, we're rebellious, and time after time we fall short of that image, small ways and in large ways. I know this without a doubt, because I'm the poster child for falling short. Even with the spirit within me, in my new nature, I still often miss the target. Here's the thing. Some would say that to admit that you've sinned means you're conceding that you're flawed in some way. And worse yet, that you're answerable for all that to someone superior to you. Well, so you are. But it's easier and more comfortable to say, hey, it's all good. I mean, who's to really say what's right and wrong? Doesn't it all depend on the circumstances, the situation one finds oneself in? Aren't the boundaries a bit blurred these days? I mean, there was a day when people thought it was all black or white. Nothing in between. But isn't life really a little more like gray? Haven't we matured to, uh, in a, as a society beyond that archaic construct of morality and, and ethics? Isn't it true that the only absolute is that there are no absolutes? And if there's no absolutes, then there's no missing the mark, because there is no mark. It's like Stephen Stills said, if you can't be with the one you love, well, just love the one you're with. There's somebody that was an expert on relationships and absolutes and everything else, huh? <laughs> Much as I still like his music. So do those who take this position really believe it, or are they just wishing and hoping? Who are they fooling, themselves, others? Well, they're not fooling God. There's an absolute for you. If you buy into any of that relativistic thinking, you must figure that the Bible is pure fiction and that Jesus was a charlatan. Yeah. And then why are you even here today? Amen. That's good. If you're here to worship God anyway, you know, just in case there really is one, then you're wasting your worship because Jesus told the woman at the Samaritan well that God wanted worshipers who worshiped in spirit and in truth. Yep. But if there's no absolutes, well, then there is no truth. So why would you acknowledge that he's a spirit and that to connect with him, you need to interact with him on a spiritual plane, spirit to spirit, heart to heart, not in a physical plane with obedience to laws, sacrifices, rituals, doing really good things just to earn favor that you already have because he's your father. He's your Abba father. In John chapter 13, we see Jesus take a drink because he was 13. No. In John chapter 13, we see Jesus performing a symbolic foot washing for his disciples. The story is typically looked at as, as a lesson in servanthood and humility, and so it is. Usually we're talking about humility on the part of the one doing the washing. But I think it's actually a two-sided coin. To genuinely accept the foot washing as an exhibition of love and service, the recipient must also exercise humility. In verse 8, in the RRV, we hear Peter saying, you ain't washing my feet. Jesus responds, if I don't, then you have no partnership with me. Peter needed to humble himself to accept that service, that gift from his own Lord. His pride was keeping him from doing so. 
John 3.16 tells us that Jesus' sacrifice was a tangible demonstration of the love of God. So to say that I don't really need that, and that I can get by on my own, to reject the need for that and the benefits is to pridefully reject the love of God. John 3 makes certain things clear about what it takes to perceive, to enter, to enjoy the kingdom of God, to participate in the type of partnership Jesus talks about. Nicodemus, who we say we see uh, engage Jesus in that chapter, he was trapped in the law. He was stuck on that physical plane. He couldn't conceive of the fact that the spiritual is the essence of relationship with God. Without being born anew by the Spirit from above, Nicodemus could not even see the kingdom, let alone enter into it. And of course, none of that would happen until Nicodemus could embrace his need for a Savior, for the one who sends that Spirit. You can't have one without the other. They're a package deal. In Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus tells us that we must be humble enough to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, to be able to be vested in the kingdom of God. If you deny that your feet are dirty, you're certainly not going to let some do-gooder wash them for you. Poor in spirit is not the same as humility, but without being humble, one will never recognize his spiritual poverty. Being poor in spirit means that you recognize that you are unable on your own to become all that God meant for you to be. You don't have the capability, you don't have the capacity, the wherewithal to do it without the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which is a gift given to you when you embrace your need for a Savior, Jesus, your life, in life. If we believe that we're able to do it on our own strength, we would be like those trying to enter the sheepfold by climbing over the back wall instead of going in through the front door which is Jesus. I grew up, I grew up in a culture where one of the main tenets of the interpretation of scripture was called total depravity. That's not poor in spirit. If it is, it's spiritual poverty on steroids. It's exactly what it sounds like, that everything about mankind has been totally corrupted. That's not the same as saying you can't do anything right. It just means that everything fallen man does or says is stained and affected by sin. Now, I specifically say fallen man because despite what some hyper-Calvinists might say, might tell you, believers are no longer in that category. Come on. We've been redeemed by the blood of our Savior. We've been regenerated. We've been restored to the image of God by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I think that's where many of these people go wrong, at least the ones I grew up with. Where I tend to go wrong is to depend upon myself my own strength to restore myself to the image of God, rather than depending upon the work of Jesus, my Savior, to do that for me. And I can't do it. And that just deepens the guilt. And it's a vicious circle. We are very independent, very, very arrogant, very self-sufficient. At least we think we're sufficient in ourselves. It's actually as difficult for that mindset as it would be for a Pharisee in Jesus' day to acknowledge spiritual poverty and that we cannot save ourselves or even contribute to that salvation. It's a matter of pride. But hey, James chapter 4, verse 6, from the RRV says that God keeps the high and mighty at arm's length while embracing those willing to accept a lower position. That lower position is not one of humiliation. It's one of humility. And it's evidenced by acknowledgement of our need for a Savior. In early Genesis, we see Adam and Eve walking upright in their position as image bearers of the king. Then, 
then they rebelled against the king and they fell from favor, subjecting themselves to the curse. Then they were on their knees behind the shrubbery, already weighed down by guilt. And I find it interesting that it only took God about six more verses to begin promising someone who would come to reverse that curse, a savior. He didn't prophesy they'd be able to do it themselves, but one of their offspring would do it. Now, I'm not here today to conduct an exercise in apologetics, which is a fancy name for defending the faith, including the very existence of God. I'm going to make the assumption, perhaps naively, that because you're here, you probably believe God exists. Hopefully, you actually believe that he's supreme, the founder, the creator, and as such has a claim on our loyalty, and that you might even concede that rebellion against a king that majestic would be the extreme of offenses and would have extreme consequences. So I'm here to talk about mankind's desperate need for a savior. I've met too many people who will say, my God wouldn't do that. My God wouldn't damn people to eternal separation from his glorious presence. My God would have a way to fix all that, even after the sinner dies. Well, maybe he does. I can't deny that possibility. But I also can't deny the clear teaching of scripture. Those who do see schism, splits, different denominations, cults, and sects. They see a picture of God that they have painted, not one of God's own personal selfies. Our God, as he reveals himself in scripture, shows himself to be both just and merciful. Now, some would say that's a contradiction. It's not. Most of you are parents, and you can answer this question. What good would it do for a growing child to know that rebellion against legitimate authority has absolutely no consequences? No different with God's children. There is no contradiction between God's justice and his mercy. It's not mercy to just look the other way. And it certainly is not love. Listen, God's mercy is the loving restraint he shows by not immediately lowering the boom on us, but instead providing avenues for his children through which he might show his love through forgiveness, thereby satisfying the justice part of his nature at the same time. If you do truly concede that this God is our Lord and King and that he does have legitimate claims on us, well, then let's talk about the ramifications of that. Like any subject of any king, we're subject to rules, guidelines, codes of conduct, promises of loyalty, dedicating our first fruits, working on his behalf, service against his enemies. In the context of serving a physical human king, most of those requirements would be attainable. In the context of serving a spiritual king, serving with a spirit that may be marred, dented, twisted, not able to be totally compliant, We need help. And that's where Jesus steps forward. He's the primary avenue through which our God chooses to exhibit his love and mercy and still satisfy his justice. Jesus says, put the blame on me, even though it's not mine. I'll take their punishment, and they can enjoy the fruits of my righteousness. Now, I'm 70. Okay, almost 71. And it's take, am I there already? (laughs) Kevin uses new math. (laughs) Anyway, so I'm 71, and it's taken me all this time to realize that my biggest enemy is me. I won't discount Satan's influence and evil intentions, but I am a son of the king. And the the king's enemy only has power 
to the extent that I empower him. That's right. I typed a word in here that, to, to define him that my spell check wouldn't let me use. So it's the enemy I'm talking about, I'll say this, he's a fraud, he's a counterfeiter, he's weak and he's an insecure, and to repeat, <laughs> he only has power to the extent that I give it to him. My biggest enemy is me. So from whom do I need to be saved? Me. My rebelliousness. My flesh. That's what gives our enemy any leverage at all. I need to place my soul, my spirit, my very life in the hands of someone who can satisfy God's justice and mercy at the same time. On my behalf. Who can demonstrate Abba's deep love for me. Amen. And his name is Jesus. Wow, I should just stop right there, huh? So once we're saved, do we still need to focus on Jesus as a Savior? The catechism I grew up with says that at that point, we need to begin to focus on service and gratitude and stop wallowing in our guilt and shame because Jesus took all that away on the cross. We are no longer depraved. We are no longer sinners with a capital S. That is, sin is no longer our practice. It no longer defines who we are. We can just say no. We are at the point where Jesus said, as he said to the formerly adulterous woman in John chapter 8, verse 10, in the RRV, we see Jesus looking up, and he sees only the woman. And he says, where are all your accusers? Is there no one left to condemn you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I, said Jesus. Now go and sin no more. He rescued her, and then he set her free. John 3, verse 17 from the RRV reminds us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that it might be rescued and saved through him. So at that point, we're called to leave the practice of sin and living in the darkness behind and to move forward into his marvelous light. The moment Jesus ceases to be your savior, all those lights are going to go out again. But that will not happen unless you turn your back on the Holy Spirit who is anxious to empower you for service to your king. Too many give God a bad rap because they force their own concept of justice on God. Frankly, we do that with all of his attributes. Love, mercy, justice, compassion, forgiveness. We define all those concepts in a way that we humans would apply them because we can't conceive of anything beyond that. Our minds are finite and that's as far as we can go. What we forget is that everything he does, he does selflessly. Whereas pretty much everything we do, we do selfishly. That's a big difference. When we talk about God, for example, seeking his glory, we see that from a human perspective. And it sounds like somebody was out to make himself look good. Well, God knows that he already looks good. And he doesn't have to paint a better picture of himself. He's simply all about sharing that glory and making his children look good. When we talk about God's justice, we see it from a human standpoint, which is generally all about satisfying a desire for vengeance, trying to get even, being all about punishment, trying to establish some, some degree of fairness, whereas God's sense of justice, God's sense of justice is simply about restoring things to the way he always intended them to be, to set things turned upside down, back upright again. It's called restoration reconciliation. And now that we're on that subject, 
justice is also a two-sided coin. It's not only about equitable punishment, but it's also about fair acquittal once certain conditions have been met. Here's the thing. You can't meet those conditions on your own. As it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, however, he is faithful and just to forgive. There's a series of ads running on TV the, lately about the IRS being the scariest entity in the world. And that if you get on a wrong side of them and you owe them, they can take your house, your car, your business, your firstborn, anything and everything. And then they show these people who claim they owed the IRS tens of thousands of dollars and were concerned that their entire lives would be forfeit until they turned their liability over to da -da -da -da, the national debt relief. And they give them this burden and they put their trust in them and they got them out of the hole. They saved them from ruin. How can people do that with something as temporary as money and not recognize that they have to make the same provision for their eternal souls and that their soul too needs to be saved from ruin? Maybe this is the most pertinent question for those of us who know that we've been saved. Do we still need a savior? Well, what about Peter? What about Paul? What about Abraham, Moses, David? All those others who were clearly people of God, saved by a savior, or at least looking forward in confidence to the promise gave, God gave that he would send a savior, they clearly did not make a practice of sin anymore, yet they still missed the mark here and there, sometimes substantially. We know that we've been forgiven. We know that we've been filled with the Spirit of God. We know that we've been regenerated and given a new nature and that now we can say no to sin. Sin is no longer our practice, no longer a way of life. But what happens when we still miss the mark? Do we still need a Savior? Well, let's ask the Apostle Paul. Surely he's a role model for all of us of someone that meets the mark that God set for us all. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 15 in the RRV, we overhear Paul talking to Timothy, his son in the faith. And he says, I'm grateful to the one who gives me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, that considered me faithful, appointing me to service, though I formerly spoke of nothing but evil and insult and persecuted his followers. But he showed me mercy because I did it in ignorance and faithlessness. And his grace overwhelmed me with the faith and love that are only found in him. What they say is true and should be embraced as such that Christ Jesus came into the world to rescue sinners of whom I am the poster child. Is he talking about his past behavior or his current state or a little bit of both? The verb tenses in the earlier verses are all past tense, but he ends up in the present tense saying, I am the chief of sinners. Elsewhere in his letters in Romans 7, Paul talks about the tension between the old nature and the new nature. In verse 21, he even describes it as a principle. It's like a Murphy's law that when he wants to do right, evil waits in ambush trying to trip him up. It's a picture of a spiritual Jekyll and Hyde wrestling match. He speaks of that tension leaving him miserable and asks the rhetorical question, who can rescue me from this deadly condition? And then he answers his own question, invoking the name of that very Savior we've just been talking about, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Listen, sainthood does not suggest perfection. It's not the opposite of sinner. What it does mean is that you've been chosen and consecrated for better things, service to the Most High God. 
I don't believe Paul's view on total depravity left him wallowing in guilt and despair at not being able to do anything right. Rather, it left him thankful and in full knowledge that anything good in him was there because of Christ Jesus who lived in him and covered him with his own righteousness. Saints though we are, we still have the capacity to miss the mark. Though redeemed and now able to say no to sin, we still have the free will that allows us to say yes, which means that we still need the rescue that only Jesus can provide. Now, I know that's not necessarily encouraging, but that simply means we need to read further, like Twain probably did not. We need to turn the page to Romans 8. Now, I'm not going to read that whole chapter, though maybe we should. You should definitely read it on your own. Read it with your family. Paul speaks of freedom from condemnation. He speaks of freedom for those who have set their minds on things of the spirit versus the flesh. You are empowered to say no to that which would lead you away from the presence of the Savior and yes to that which draws you closer to him. We won't read the whole chapter, but we will read the end of it. Beginning at verse 31 from the RRV to the end of the chapter, Paul says, so what's our response to all this? If God is our advocate, who can successfully oppose us? If he didn't even withhold his own son, but yielded him up for all of us, wouldn't he also graciously give us all things? Who can make accusation against those whom God has consecrated for his service? It's God himself declaring us innocent. Who could possibly declare us to be guilty? Come on, says Paul. We have Christ Jesus, the one who died, the one who was raised, the one who sits at the right hand of God, the one who is interceding there on our behalf. Who or what could come between us and the love of Christ? Affliction, persecution, distress, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. As the saying goes, we're being killed all day long for your sake, like sheep destined for the slaughter. No, in all these things, we don't just prevail. We are on the other side of being conquerors. We're beyond being conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, says Paul, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor impending dangers, nor evil future intentions, no powerful forces, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to come between us and the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's eternal, uncreated, so it stands to reason that every aspect of his nature and being were always there also. That includes his love. That includes his love for you. Everything after that was created. And nothing created can separate you from what was there all the time. The love of God, who gave his own son to be your redeemer, your rescuer, your savior. Cling to that. When your flesh and your spirit are at war, when your godly instincts and your fleshly desires are intention, remember your Savior and remember that he does not condemn you, but says, now go and sin no more. If the worship, when the worship team come back up, listen, God is God. He can do anything, right? So he could even lie to us. Well, no, God is truth. It's who he is. If he lied, he wouldn't be God. Well, but could he fix things so that we would never sin again? Couldn't sin again? Well, in a book that Jamie compelled me to read by Henri Nguyen, I read this paragraph. As father, he wants his children to be free, 
free to love. That freedom includes the possibility of their leaving home and going to a different country and losing everything, like the prodigal son did, which is the subject of that book. The father's heart knows all the pain that will come from that choice, but his love makes him powerless to prevent it. His love makes him powerless to prevent it. As father, he desires that those who stay at home, like the prodigal's elder brother, also enjoy his presence and experience his affection. But here again, he only wants to offer a love that can be freely received. He suffers beyond telling when his children honor him only with lip service, while their hearts are far from him. He knows their deceitful tongues and their disloyal hearts, but he cannot, he cannot make them love him without losing his true fatherhood. He will not force you to love him because he would lose his true fatherhood. As long as that's true, you will have the freedom to miss the mark. But if you confess your sins to your Savior, he is faithful and just to forgive you because he's your father and he loves you beyond imagining. He is, he is your living hope. Christ Jesus, your Lord. Sure. Can we pray a minute? Father, we just pray a, pray a blessing. We pray a blessing on us, on all those at home, all those members of our family. We just, we just long, Lord, that everyone would understand that their hope, their hope lies only in Jesus Christ, that they need a Savior, that they cannot do it on their own, but that God has provided a way, and that way's name is Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Church in the City podcast. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star review whenever you're listening to this podcast and share this episode with a friend as we're fulfilling our mission of empowering a movement of passionate Jesus followers. Thank you again, and see you Wednesday for our midweek podcast.